Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Today, we have the Magic Castle at Disneyland, Christopher Polson. Vito, let me tell you, if I'm the Magic Castle at Disneyland, you are, in fact, the life-size Millennium Falcon. Oh, wow. Thank you, Christopher. At Euro Disney in Paris. That is the greatest compliment I think you've given me this season. It's a big one. Mackenzie on this end. Thank you so much. Big compliments because it's a big night. It's a big night, Chris. What are we celebrating? Vito, bud, this is season two finale. We made it through two seasons. Two seasons and all. He's got to be so amazed that this all started just you and I wanted to talk to each other during a pandemic and share some ideas. And here we are season two finishing and we're finishing on a high note. Like, let me tell you finishing on a high note. That's what I like Like, to hear. Like really high. And then season three, we've already lined up some amazing people. Like this is just, it's incredible. And we just so thankful for all the support that we've gotten and for the amazing people we've had on and their willingness just to share so much with us right like if there's one thing i don't know about you chris but i've learned is that teachers are very generous very not generous. generous with their knowledge generous with their time and just wanting to help the profession this is one of those professions where the more you help each other the better the whole profession gets like you've been in entertainment i've been in entertainment you know it's a very cutthroat jealous kind of world and um you know, people don't like to share in that because it cuts them out. But here, we, we've all been benefiting. Well, I know that over the, you know, August 27th is, August 27th of 2020 was when we posted our first episode. And we're almost, we're almost to a year of episodes, Vito. And I just think about this past school year and how much better and more open-minded and how my worldview in terms of teaching has just expanded. Um, and, and that's... You know, that's, that's, that's coming from a guy who's often set in his ways. So it's been, it's been a really, really wonderful experience to do this with you. I get, uh, like I say, I have the best seat in the house because I get to watch you work. Um, But um, yeah, and I hope that our listeners out there have those same sentiments that they get to watch you work. No, that they're, um, that they're really benefiting from the knowledge from the guests we have on. But Vito, how are you doing? What's new? What's exciting? How's the Octomester treating you? Oh, I am so happy. This will be the last time I say that word on this show and ever. I am finishing up the last one and the end is in sight. And my students are kind of interesting because normally in June, students peter out and it's like pulling teeth to get anything out of them. But they're so motivated this year to just end the year that they're like, sir, just give me all the work and let's get this year done. I love I've that. been so happy with that. We're just plowing through. What about you, Chris? Well, they knew that the June was on the milk. Um and uh, and yeah yeah um, I'm doing well I'm feeling good at better and better every day, and uh, it's really uh, it's been a, a good a good week since we last spoke um, with the show. Students are engaged. Students know, you know. I, I think we're going back to in person next week. The the grads are kind of starting to get a little bit of it's it's a different type of grad buzz, but it's a grad buzz nonetheless. Um, it's going well. It's definitely different. It's definitely quieter. You know, I teach my classes in my office through my computer, and you know, you usually hear the the sounds of people in the halls. That's just not there. It's quieter, but 
you know, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of belief and a lot of faith in these young people. They're going to do some great things and they're really going to come together. And, and, and I, I think they have the power to change the world. My friend, you don't, you don't go through something like this as a young person and not, and not be a world changer. Well, it's what I always say. Anyone who complains about this generation of young people have obviously never met them. Never met them. But you know what, Chris? What is enough? That's enough from you and me. Literally, nobody wants to hear from you. <laughs> I, I we, we keep talking. Why are we doing this? I, we were on Family Feud. You and I were an answer on Family Feud. Who does no one want to hear from? Ding, ding, ding. Vito and Chris, first answer. A hundred percent of the answers. There weren't even other answers on the board. Everyone just knew. No one so, could steal. <laughs> well, let's then let's get on there. Let's stop, let's stop talking because we want somebody else to, to talk with us tonight. Uh, Chris, I am so, so thrilled to have this person on the show with us tonight. Not only did I get to work with her, but I still get to stay in contact with her. And just an overall incredible educator. Uh, she is currently a 7 to 12 educational consultant specializing in mathematics for the Ottawa Catholic School Board. So she works with 7 to 12 math educators as they implement strategies that increase student engagement and achievement. Um she has participated in the Knowledge Hook Math Leaders Roundtable Series, been part of an expert panelist for Text Help that discussed strategies to help move math instruction to the digital learning environment, and has been a presenter at a variety of conferences. She is a recipient of the Ottawa Catholic School Board Director of Education Award. She's currently working on a Master's of Mathematics teaching at the University of Waterloo is a formidable math teacher. My goodness, watching her just makes me realize how much I had to learn in my own craft. And overall, amazing person to know. Tonight, Chris, on the show, we have Mary Lou Diel. Mary Lou, welcome to the show. Wow. Go. Wow, that introduction. Uh, you'd think I wrote it or something. <laughs> um, uh, well, thank you for having me. And I was very flattered to be invited onto the show to get to chat with fellow educators about all things math related since uh, it's the world that I live in. I eat, sleep and drink math, especially with the courses I'm taking through Waterloo. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about math since in Ontario, especially it's um, prime um, topics of conversation as we wait with bated breath for the new grade nine curriculum to uh, drop any day. <laughs> any day. Uh, any day. And I, I'm sure it's just going to be wonderful when it does. So <laughs> before uh, we jump on that political landmine, uh, Mary Lou, why don't you, uh, like with, with all our guests, we like to hear their story. So tell us your story. What got you into teaching into the style that you did and to the position that you're in today? Well, I grew up in Labrador City, Newfoundland, a very small town in um, up north. And my mom was a teacher. Um, she taught all kinds of different things. She was a, we call them substitute teachers in, in Newfoundland, not supply teachers. So that was a learning curve coming here. But um, so she was a supply, a substitute teacher who tutored a lot on the side. So I always had that role model there for me. And she was always helping students that struggled and was always so positive in terms of how she approached the learning with those students and really tried to work from 
what they knew, their assets, as, a, as opposed to being like, well, you don't know this, so we can't do that. Um, I went to university here in Ottawa at Carleton, and I wasn't sure that I was going to go in ed- education, but I continued to tutor on the side for pretty much my whole academic career and did a few different things in school. And then finally, I made a decision to go to teacher's college. And my friends were like, well, we're glad you figured it out because we kind of knew since you were in about grade 10 that you were going to be a teacher. <laughs> um, because my my house on the weekends, whenever, especially as the higher up we got, was always, my friends were always there and we were doing our math at the table together. And that's how I kind of got into that that role. And that's how I see math as... Uh, a collaboration, and it's an opportunity for students to work together and learn together, and really, really find the beauty in math and the joy in math that I think is lost in um, a lot of the different images of math that people think about when they think about math. And I, I want to go back to that grade ten. You're at the table doing math. So were you kind of the the leader? Were you the mentor to your friends? Because when I had friends over, then you know, studying for a math exam, one of them would be like, "Hey, you know what we should do? Watch Titanic." And we did that. <laughs> so, like, were you the mentor? Is is, is that well? How they knew? I I definitely had a um, like I I was. I persevered with math and I, I wouldn't stop until I could figure something out. So I definitely was the um, go-to person that my friends had if they were struggling with something when it came to math. Um, so they would come and my mom had the quote, she like, you learn 90% of what you teach. So by having all my friends over and doing math with them and explaining it to them, it made me a better student because then I was better equipped to be able to show my thinking. So uh, I, I definitely, in, in hindsight, I definitely think that that really helped shape where I stand on a lot of my opinions when it comes to math. And I do have a lot of them, um, but uh, I, I definitely was a leader at that point. And it, continu- it continues now. And I actually have a 14-year-old son. And I said to him, I was like, you know, if you ever want to have your friends come over and do math, and he looks at me, he's like, mom, that's never going to happen. I'm like, you wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I like right from the right from the starting gate here, Vito, I mean, I think it must be the season two finale because it's the quickest big vibe that we've ever had. But what, I just love that you said, you know, find the joy in it. Like, is that not one of the, it's such a simple yet powerful statement about education in general, no matter what we're learning, if we can find the joy, we can find success. And, and, and I really love that you've taken that world of math, a world that, you know, if I'm being honest with you, like I didn't get a lot of joy in it. Math was one of those things where I was stressed and I was scared. And I think if that mindset had have been different when I was in it, you know, maybe I wouldn't be a chaplain right now. Maybe I I would be teaching math or, or doing something else. But really, like seriously, just being able to put joy into any discipline is so crucial. And I love that that's part of your journey to getting to the person you are today. Well, and I think as we're, you know, exploring all these different things, bringing the joy out is essential and helping students be connected to the math, whether it's through, you know, different social justice projects that are out there, or if it's through even just like looking at the beauty of music and 
uh, math and art and math. There's so many different pieces of math that we don't cover as part of curriculums that could be woven into the stories that we tell within our classes that will reach so many other students instead of the students who can do math really fast in their head who are often labeled oh you're a genius at math but doing math facts in your head fast isn't the only indicator that we have that a, that a child is good at math students need the time to play with it and the idea of the using Peter Lilladell's research in the thinking classroom, that's that's what he stems everything on, is being able to play with the math and, and let students struggle. Because as teachers and educators, we tend to want to step in and help students because we, we want them to succeed and all those different things. However, the productive struggle piece is just as important because you need to learn how to frame that thinking and, and be willing to do the thinking and be willing to make the mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Um, for me, games, I, like I love board games. We we need a new house because we have so many board games that have come in through the pandemic. Um, and I loved playing video games. As a child, I played cribbage. Um, and my dad would, would take the points if you couldn't count your hand correctly. So you learned how to count the, the points for cribbage pretty quick. And from day one, when I started teaching at St. Pat's, I incorporated that game piece into my culture in my classroom. And I had cha challenges and I modeled it on the show Survivor. We couldn't vote students out of the class, but we could vote out groups who would lose half their points. And then the students are like, well, miss, why half their points? Why not, you know, whatever? I'm like, well, because if we are only ever dividing by half, no one will ever have zero. And they're like, oh. And, and those, those challenges that, you know, we would have with the different games, some of them were forced and they were secretly just doing a math worksheet, but they were filling in a Sudoku puzzle in order to be able to get the answers to do the worksheet. It, it changed the, um, the energy in the class and their willingness to engage in the different activities. Or I would bring in, you know, different word jumbles because I believe writing is a, an important part of math that is underutilized for a lot of students. And it wasn't until I had a student who he um, he was identified gifted and but he had a very hard time showing math through equations, which is kind of ironic. However, he could explain it with sentences incredibly particular question that every year would come up in the textbook and I could do I could do it I could do the question no problem but I was never satisfied with my explanation until I had this student and his explanation with sentences in math completely clarified everything it was just beautiful the way that he was able to bring that together and it's not something that you get to experience a lot just because of the nature of the assessments and the different things that we do in class Wow. Okay. So this, this just jumps right into it then, because, you know, math is a very polarizing issue and, and students come in, they either like love it or hate. And as you said, it's because they're really fast at it. It's usually this attitude that I was always able to do well on a traditional test or quiz. Therefore I must be good at math. So what, what are some other things you did in your, your classroom to bring your students into the love of math? Because what you're describing right now is just amazing. It, it like, it opens up the world. And it, it sounds, sounds yeah. fun. And it sounds really fun. Like, I want to be like, in your class. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to going back to the classroom in the next year or two for sure, because I, I definitely miss that, the student interaction and being able to um, have those experiences. Um, 
throughout my career, and I'm I've been in this now. I'll be going on 22 years. Um, grade nine math is probably the course that I taught the most and enjoyed equally as much as you know grade twelves, and because each student brings a different um, story with them when they come into your room and. In, in the grade nine, there were often students who were like, I hate math, or I'm not a math person, or you'd have the conversation with the mom or the dad or, or the guardian, and, oh, I wasn't very good at math either, so we're not surprised. And it's like, okay, first of all, we need to change that. Um, we're all capable of doing math. And as soon as those words come out of your mouth, when you give permission to somebody to not try anymore you're not really helping them be successful. So the first place we need to go with making math fun is changing our language that we're using around it because there's no such thing as math people. There are people who can do math quicker or probably more efficiently than other people. However, we're all capable of learning and doing math. It's just at different paces and different things like that. And I don't mean um, to, I don't mean to cut you off, but just for our Alberta listeners and anybody who comes from an area where grade 9 is the last year in middle school in on grade nine is the first year of high school when they have those longer courses and it's more it's on a high school schedule and high school style expectations so this is to me this is really interesting too because you, you talk about grade nine and that's like a starting point of high school whereas mm -hmm. here in alberta it's like an ending point of middle school so there's a whole different challenge of like getting started on the right foot too to get that love going at the high school level yeah, there's so there's so many different levels to it. And I always approach it from when these students come to me, they depending on where they are in the semester, because as you pointed out, they're starting high school. I, I just think it's important that they start off on the right foot and their experiences in the math class are positive experiences. Um, and it's not to say that uh, while I was in the classroom, I, we still had the traditional tests and the quizzes and all those different things. But I had definitely shifted my approach um, in terms of how I engage the students with the different types of problems I would give. I gave up, I shouldn't say I gave up because it wasn't giving up. I, I, I made the deci decision that I wasn't going to have an emphasis on homework the same way that I used to because the students who knew how to do it were the ones that were doing it. The students who didn't know what they were doing couldn't do it. And then it just set up that whole cycle of negative feelings when it came to math. So I kind of, I, I, I left, let that go and uh, I would assign it and I would, you know, touch base with students, but it was never something that I would determine whether or not a student was doing math. Um, being able to have students work in flexible groups up at boards where you were forcing everybody in the group to have a voice. Um, so you would use uh, random groupings up at the boards and you would give problems orally to students and you would just give just enough detail to get them started. And there'd be times where they're like, well, do we have enough information? And then your answer to them is, do you have enough information? Because because <laughs> as Peter Lilledahl talks about in his book, Thinking Classrooms, 14 different practices that he's researched, he, you we're so quick to want to jump in and give them the answer. But the answer isn't the most important part in math. It's the thinking required to get to the answer. And the emphasis has always been on the answer. And we need to shift from that so that students aren't just trying to come up with an algorithm to put the numbers on the piece of paper, because it's not about that. There's 
computers that can do that. You can take pictures of pretty much any question where they're looking for a single answer and the computer will have it done for you in a couple of minutes. So we need to reframe that whole piece so that we can have students engage in the thinking. So I tried to do that in my class by having games, challenges, light on the homework, having them work at uh, vertical surfaces in groups and ensuring that everybody in their group could understand it. For me as the educator, I got an immediate snapshot of what students knew how to do and what they didn't know how to do. And it gave me, uh, it made me a better teacher because I got a lot better at doing the sequencing of the different things that I would need to do to make sure that those key learnings would come out. And I was able to give students who didn't traditionally have voices in the class because they, um, they weren't the first to raise their hand and, and like studies show teachers, you tend to navigate to the people if you don't give enough wait time and all those different things. It's the same students who always get a chance to have their voice heard. What this did was it gave you an opportunity to be able to brought, lift students up and give them the voice because for so many of them, it's a confidence piece. Uh, I would see kids who would have answers on a piece of paper and they erase the whole thing. And like, you can see if you hold it up to the light, what was written there before. And it's like, you had it. You absolutely had it. So spending the time to build that confidence and give them the success and let them play with the math and see it's not just about being able to plug numbers into a formula. That's boring math. Um, th those are the things that I tried to do. So what, what would you do for those students then who are like, no, just give me the formula and tell me what questions to do because this is what I want to do. Did you ever come across that? Well, definitely. I mean, when I, when I, when I started teaching, I, you know, I did the, I do one, you do one. And like, I definitely followed that. And that's how I learned. And that's how a lot of teachers learn because that was their experience. And if you're teaching math, you were probably <laughs> decent at it, especially at the high school level. So I, the most, the biggest pushback that I got when I was doing the thinking classroom model where, where there was the random grouping and all those different things and, and just really being purposeful and very intentional in the questions that you were using was from the high achieving students because they, they were good at being students. They knew that if they waited long enough, I would put the formula up there and show them how to do it. And then they'd be good to go and have an example. So that was the biggest pushback. And it, it takes a lot to wait because it takes time for them to realize on the end of it, they're going to be that much better students because they have to think. So when I started, uh, I, I would always start with the formula and show them how to do it because that's how I did it. But by the time I, I stopped, I was like, you know, no, you're not getting it. You got to try it first. And I was very adamant that something had to happen before you were going to get the next the next little carrot to move along. One of the things I really like about that is that it really, um, it gives teachers kind of, uh, it gives them permission for there to be silence and permission for there to be the awkward pause and permission to wait. And because isn't that sometimes how teachers feel? I've said the stuff I want to say, the questions on the board or I've given the problem and now no one's saying it. I better say something. I have to fill the space with sound. And I really like how you're talking about in terms of a teaching practice, giving the permission to really let there be that silence while the gears are turning and 
be okay with the awkward moment because the awkward moment there where it is silence, where we think we need to fill that room with sound, that can be where that real learning and that real confidence is being built. And I really love that you kind of framed it that way because I know, I know for me, I still, I'm, I've been teaching for 10 years. I still get in that moment, that, that mindset sometimes where, Oh, it's quiet in here the room has to have sound in it. Something has to be happening. And I, and so thank you for that. I love that point. Love it. Vito, big vibe, Mark it. <laughs> Mark, Mark. Okay. So you, you, you've, you've been talking about it. You've, you've mentioned a few items about it. We're, we're already in the waters of it. So walk me then through uh, math uh, as a thinking platform. In other words, take me through a thinking classroom through the lens of mathematics. So, the thinking classroom essentially, well, it starts with the idea of building, you need to build a culture within your classroom. You're, you're not just going to start your first day You're and you're going to give them like, okay, now we're going to um, factor. And so here's a question, figure it out. That's not how it works. You take the time to build a culture of thinking within your classroom where you use tasks that are not necessarily and usually are not uh, curricular based so you're using tasks that are more engaging uh, in terms of content or something that students can play with, and there's multiple entry points. So you're starting the first few classes where that's that's what you're doing. You're building that culture of thinking in there where you have students, if you're doing it um, wholeheartedly, it's always random groups. You never know who's going to be with who. Um, you give them a task. They're working up at whiteboards, uh, and the, the key piece of it, is there's mobility of knowledge. So if you're at your board in your group of three and you're working on something and you're stuck, you're encouraged to look around at what your peers are doing in your classroom because the way I might choose to approach a problem may not be the way that you're going to choose to approach it. We might still both be right or I might be stuck and I might be like, okay, we're here. I wonder what that group over there is doing. So um, that's paramount and so crucial. And that's the biggest, to me, the biggest benefit of the thinking classroom is that mobility of knowledge piece. Cause there's so many times, even, even if you're working on a question by yourself, you'll get to one part and you're like, Oh, I'm stuck here. And it's sometimes a little tiny thing. And you look at your neighbor and you have that little conversation and you're like, Oh, Oh yeah, that makes total sense. And then you're on your way and, and you've just increased your confidence in your ability to do that. So the mobility of the knowledge and starting off where you're building the culture, then you kind of proceed into the curricular piece where you start looking at the curriculum. Ideally, you're spiraling. So you keep coming back to topics over and over again, where students have a chance to dig deeper each time they go. Um, the best thing is when students have the same question and different groups come up with different answers. And then you can engage that discourse between them and really force them to think about their solutions and whether or not they're able to defend what their solution is and, and how confident they are. And then you as a teacher, you're always watching in terms of what's happening in the class because there are going to be pieces that are happening as they play out that you want to highlight. And you as a teacher, you're moving. You're, you're moving. There's no such thing as standing up as stage in the stage in a thinking classroom. You are actively engaged in your student thinking because they can't hide. Um, all of this thinking classroom stemmed from um, observations of students in the classroom and and the idea of studenting 
And, you know, when you assign a question and it's your turn, students are often sitting there or they're rummaging in their bag or they need to go to the bathroom or they need to sharpen their pencil or they or they have their hand over their paper so you can't really see what they're doing. So the number of students who are actually on task is actually quite low when you have that model, whereas the thinking, there's no hiding. And they're up there, they're working, you can see what they're doing, and you can intervene if you need to. However, you really hold back on, on intervening. And you have to get you, when you start with it, students will ask questions that will stop their thinking. So it'd be like, oh, am I right? And if you tell them right then and there that they're right, they're done thinking. So you would answer with, I don't know, why don't you have a look at what they're doing over there? They might be 100% right. However, they need to be sure they're right before they move on, because the next time they do this, it could be on a test or something along those lines. So there's all these these teacher moves where you get better at um, not answering those those stop thinking questions. And then the students stop asking because they realize, you know what, she's not going to tell me we need to figure this out on our own. And and you as the teacher in your planning you really need to be intentional in your questions. You need to anticipate the things that you're going to see because there will be times where it's not going to come out. And that's where you need to jump in and somehow get what you need to come out in that lesson on somebody's board so that your goal is also met. Um, we're a big proponent or supporter of learning goals and, and all those things, which I think are very, very important. But I do feel there are lots of times in the math class that the learning goal needs to be written down after the lesson, because the learning goal can serve as that stop thinking indicator. So if I put up by the end of this lesson, you will be able to find the equation of the line, then they, they know what they need to do in the lesson that day. So they're still important to be voiced and it's still important for the students to know it. However, they come at the end of the lesson because that comes in with the consolidation after you've gone through the tasks that you've asked them to do. Some big points that you just hit on there. I know we had Tom Conklin on the show and he always said the one thing students are always frustrated about in his classroom is that he never gave any answers. <laughs> and, and you're absolutely right. Let them do the thinking. Who's doing the work in the class? I know I, I taught grade eight math. It was wonderful. And my last year doing it, I stole an idea from Sunil Singh about doing math recess at the beginning of mm -hmm. each class. And so I remember the first day I introduced the kids to Sprouts, this this old game, like pen and paper game. They went nuts. They were playing on boards. They were like chart paper. It was like they were begging me to do this every day. So I think uh, what, what, everything you're describing there just to me sounds like the classroom uh, that we need to be in now because this is what their future is heading into. Is it not like they're going to have to be able to think through problems on their own? Yeah. I um, So last week in um, Ontario, we had the, it was the provincial mathematics um, conference, the Ontario association of mathematics educators. So there were some fantastic presentations by all kinds of amazing educators. And at the beginning of the, of, of the show, you had talked about educators want to share and they're so willing to share. And that's what this conference is all about. Um, but uh, Dr. Eugenia Chang, uh, she's a mathematician who is very vocal with lots of different things. And she's, she's created two new words. One is called um, congressive versus ingressive. And um, congressive is the idea that math is a competition and it's isolating and um, all those different pieces. The traditional thought of 
uh, a mathematician, an old man who's at a chalkboard or that kind of thing. And her idea is that it's ingressive. And it's the, uh, the idea that, you know, you need to collaborate, you need to play. And she teaches art, uh, math to art students at the University of Chicago. And she had a quote that, um, re- I'm just trying to find it because um, I want to read it because it really captures ultimately what we're trying to accomplish with math, especially when you have those students who ask, well, why do I need to learn this? And it's like, you know what, you're probably never going to factor another quadratic again in your life. Um, However, this was a quote from one of her students. Now I find that math is not just a tool. And the real reason for learning math is to practice our thinking. And I really think that that quote from Dr. Eugenia Chang's student really captures what we're trying to do. Because yes, we're going to teach you all these abstract formulas that in reality, many of them, unless you go into specific things, will you see them again? However, what we're doing is increasing your ability to think and your ability to problem solve and your ability to reason, um, which is a skill that is becoming even more important with social media and all the data that's out there and being critical consumers of that. And and you need to question those things because some of the graphs that I've seen go up on news channels, um, it's horrifying because they're wrong. (laughs) Not even a little (laughs) bit. They're very wrong. And, And if you as a human being can't analyze that and question the validity of it, we're in trouble. Serious trouble. And I, I, I'm with you on that. Like that's, I think something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something we look at. So then you're already down the path and I I love that quote. So what are some pitfalls then we have when it comes to learning math and like, what can we do to, to avoid them? Well, so interestingly enough, well, I'm always working on these things, but as um, in Ontario, the grade nine, there's going to be a shift in the, grade nine math course uh, it'll be detract currently we're the only province in Canada that has attract grade nine and Chris you alluded to in Alberta grade 10 is kind of when high school starts um, well here in Ontario starts grade nine math was streamed into different pathways and and they're getting rid of that for September so we're we're waiting um, for the actual documentation to come out but in terms of the pitfalls so much of it is around the mindset piece And whether it's teacher mindset, student mindset, parent mindset, community mindset, all of those different mindsets play a role in so many of the pitfalls. And part of the reason why the grade nine course is being de-streamed is the the over-representation of different um, groups within applied level math classes or students who are identified with a learning disability are overrepresented in those classes, which we know statistically there's no difference in terms of their ability to be able to learn math. So by bringing in this course, we have to change our mindset in terms of who can and can't do math. It starts as early as grade, as age four, when students start to develop their mathematical identity. And we need to start soon as they're born in terms of that identity and using phrases and playing games and doing those things that make math fun, not sitting down on an iPad and doing time drills of their timetables, because if that's the only experience that they're going to get when it comes to math, of course, they're not going to like math. Of course, they're going to get to grade nine and be like, I'm no good at math. I can't do that. So 
the pitfalls is really is challenging that mindset and challenging teachers to be able to recognize that students, they all have the ability to do something and finding what that is and building them up from there. Awesome. Because we had Dr. Erin Maloney on the show too. And, you know, she had mentioned that a, a parent who has anxiety over their child learning math will actually make it worse for them uh, by yes. the end of the year, no matter yes. what they do, like that it actually, uh, the, the research has shown that it makes it worse. Um, so I love the fact you say play games, don't just drill them. And I just want to jump in and say that last comment you made, we need to find what students can do and build them from there. Again, another amazing breath of fresh air, because how often do we think we go in, we go, okay, I got my curriculum document. I know I have to do this, 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 and I have to get through this. And, and actually, actually thinking, wait a minute, where are you at first? So I can come, you don't need to come to me. I'm the teacher. I'm going to come to where you are and I'm going to build from there. Yes. Yes. I love that. What a, what an amazing, if we go into every single new course with that mindset, we're going to see success. Mm -hmm. And, and for so many students, once they start seeing that success, you can see the light bulb going off in their head and it changes their trajectory in terms of who they are as students. Um, there's just, and there's so many different ways to do it. And what's going to work for me may not work for Chris, or it may not work for Vito. And being flexible with how we're, we're working with students is important. Um, and being able to recognize different ways of learning, different ways of knowing, the different funds of knowledge that students come with and, and valuing that and, and bringing, inviting that into your classroom and inviting all, all students in, in forming a positive mathematics identity. So your focus right now is on using technology in the math classroom. So what does that mean? Well, I, I personally feel that um, multiple representations when it comes to math is critical for deep understanding of many things. And in this day and age, when we have access to tools like Desmos or GeoGebra or um, Mathagon has this new polypad that's out that's absolutely incredible in terms of the manipulatives and, and the things that they have in there. So I, I feel that technology, when used appropriately, enhances learning. Um, it, it doesn't do the learning for the kids. It doesn't give them the answer. However, it helps make connections between so many concepts that at times seem abstract. So I know myself personally, I was in grade 11 and I got a Casio graphing calculator. Um, so that was like 1993 when I would have gotten that. So a long time ago. Um, but it changed my understanding of so many parts of math because you have so these, these expressions that are full of letters that really I had no conceptual understanding of them until I saw what they look like. And when you see what they look like and you then can compare it back to that crazy equation that had letters in it, it makes the math more sensical in terms of what's happening. So pairing the technology with the thinking classroom where the students are able to play and have access to all those tools to enhance that play and bring them down a rabbit hole if necessary um, to get to where they need to go that's where the power is and, and leveraging it. And ultimately 
we need to expose kids to the different tools that are out there because they need to be digitally fluent. Um, there's no perfect tool out there and, and on their own, they, they are just a tool. They're exactly that without having the discourse and the struggle and being able to see the possibilities with the connections that can be made with the technology uh, is very, very powerful, especially for students who have different um, learning disabilities in terms of spatial sense and have challenges being able to make those connections or just working memory and different things like that, the technology really enhances students' ability to experience success. So I, I'm familiar with some of these tools, but for those uh, listeners right now who aren't, or is this just new to them, like how does that look in a classroom? Like let's. So for me, um, I, I'm a big fan. My favorite go-to for pretty much everything to start with is uh, Desmos. Um, mm. And part of that is they have, uh, well, you can just download it right to your phone. So you have, whether it's an Android or iPhone, whatever it is, you can just download it straight to your phone. You got a graph and calculator right there um, in front of you. So when you give students problems, oftentimes they'll be like, well, I'm not sure what to do. And my first question is, well, have you graphed it? Have you put it in the Desmos? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, go do that. And 99% of the time, they don't come back. Because once they put it in there, they're like, oh, that's what we're talking about here. And it really, it connects the dots in so many different ways. So for me, I, I, I didn't ban cell phones ever. I, I didn't have that culture in my room. I asked them to use them. And once we established that culture, it was respected. And I, I, I leveraged it. I used it to my advantage for students to be able to have access to that tool um, whenever they needed it. And then fortunately, Desmos came out with a test mode. So you could actually lock their phones out and they could use it on their test. Um, or I would let them use a Chromebook or whatever, because I felt if I was letting them use it in the learning process, they needed to have it on the assessment piece that went along with it. Uh, and, and what I love about what you're talking about as well is the fear of using technology in a math classroom is all oh, the students will find out there's such a thing as photo math. It could, they could just take a picture of the question. And, <laughs> and when you actually have like a thinking classroom, okay, great. You can take a picture of it, but that's not going to do anything for you. And you, and you embrace, you embrace it instead of making it a management exactly. issue. It's embraced. Yep. So you it's change the question. And, and what, like, you, and I think too, what you get there is you get people, appropriately out in the open instead of you know the under the desk you know um mm. yep. yeah I, I really i really like that embracing it i love it well you have to and and like it's well there. It's, it's 2021 it's not going away it isn't a fad yeah like that whole thing well you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket well <laughs> jokes on you <laughs> i call it my external hard drive i don't need totally things <laughs> yeah, it's, it's there. It's there. Use it. And there's just it, it. There's so many pieces to the technology that I firmly believe enhance and even photo math, encouraging students to use that or there's so many of them out there now in terms of, you know, the ability to do some are better than others. Um, but encourage them to use it. Check your answers, because when you take the pressure off students in terms of getting the right answer being the goal, um, versus being able to explain the process that you use to get there, it completely shifts that that need to cheat and that need to um, have have the 
just the right answer. So I, I've been supporting teachers with the online learning and trying to help them rethink assessment and just the way that they assess students and just the type of questions that you ask. And, you know, like the idea of in grade nine math, give them, give them a line with no grid and say, what's a possible equation for this line? Explain why. Photo math's not going to do that for you. Could you then take the equation and put it into a graphing calculator to see if what you think makes sense makes sense? I really hope you do that. And you tell me that I checked it on Desmos and this is why I know that I'm right. Imagine. Oh, just talking about the process, just the thought process that goes through making those decisions and then standing by the decisions. We're looking at, looking at processes. We're looking at confidence building. We're looking at, and then, oh my goodness, I didn't know something. This is what I had to know. And now I know it and I can own that knowledge. I I love it. I love it. <laughs> You've been loving this whole episode. I know. And, you and, and 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 I was that kid that could have really used that. And and so uh, I this just it's very joyful hearing you speak about math and the class and and, and and the cultures you cultivate in math because I was the kid who struggled. And I mean, you will always have students who struggle, and and that's okay. And and I, but it, I'd rather struggle joyfully, right? Yeah. Well, but I, but that's an important part of, of becoming of who we are. And But it's important that they're not automatically excluded from having the chance to struggle simply because of a label or a, a pathway that they, they've chosen or, or they're not given an opportunity to, to play. So let's... So many good things we can jump in on here, but... Just in your opinion, what do you think teachers should be unapologetic about in their practice? Oh my gosh, there's so many um, little things there. But um, I think the biggest thing that teachers should be unapologetic about is making mistakes. We all make mistakes. We need to own them and learn from them and share those mistakes that we make. Um, in whether it's mistakes in terms of, oh my God, that activity that I did, I will never be able to do that again. It failed miserably and be unapologetic for that because the fact that you can recognize that you made the mistake and you were willing to try it in the first place, that means that you're on the path to be to student success and for you to become a teacher who values the success of their students. So I think you should be unapologetic about being, about making mistakes. Y yes. Season two finale. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that makes me happy as a teacher because I make a lot of them, but I own them. Um, Vito. Chris. The sun. Its sun is setting on season two. I see it. It's and open. I know as a writer, you liked all those sounds. Sun is setting on season two. <laughs> but Vito, do you know what it's setting on? It's setting on, on the pulse and points. There we are. Goodness, my friends, pulse and points. We had the pleasure and the honor to talk with Mary Lou Diel tonight. We are so lucky uh, to talk to her. The pulse and points from tonight. Teachers, positive roles are key. B1. B1. How often do we hear someone saying that it was like one person, it was their mom, or it was a teacher, or it was someone else? 
and that got them set on this road to being a teacher or to being doing something they're dreaming of. Well, my friends, Polson Point, the second flexibility in giving students a voice is essential. Number three, friends, spend time building confidence. There is nothing wrong with spending some time building confidence. Be intentional in questions and anticipate to encounter good planning, mindful planning, and being mindful of stop thinking questions and answers and experiences. Hey, friends, we need to find what students can do, and we need to build from there. The final Polson point of the night, don't be afraid to play in math. Whether that means tech enhancement, games, or knowledge mobility, play. Play with it. But friends, you know we can't end season two with just the Polson points because we need the big vibes tonight. My friends, don't fear the silence. Put it in their hands and let them work with it and don't fear it. Focus on the process and the biggest vibe of the night. Vito, the biggest vibe tonight. Give it to me. I don't care what you're teaching, what discipline you're teaching. Find the joy in it. Find the joy in math. Find the joy in LA. Find the joy in social. Find the joy in religious ed. Whatever you're teaching, find the joy in it. And teachers, I don't think I don't I don't know if there'd be a better thing to end season two on, Vito, but be unapologetic about making mistakes. Own them, learn from them, and share them. Be unapologetic about your mistakes. Mary Lou, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I am looking here at three pages worth of notes from what you were saying, and I'm just I'm just in, in, in heaven right now. I loved every moment of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh, it was a true joy to have you. So, so wonderful. And you always get me pumped up. I'm like, I need to be back in the math classroom again. So th thank <laughs> you too. for being here. <laughs> And thank you for joining us for another season of the Unapologist Podcast. Join us next time when we talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. The Unapologist Podcast.